Hello and welcome to a somewhat surprise special edition episode of the Yancey Street Podcast talking about Matt Reeves, the Batman, aka Batman 2022, the Battinson Batman starring Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz, whatever you need to identify the movie, that is what we are discussing. Um, and when I say we this time, there actually is a we involved. Um, which I know I keep teasing, and he's actually here this time. Would you like to introduce yourself? Um, hello. This is Hi. my husband. His name is Adam. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. And you are a big Batman fan, obviously. Yes, yeah. You would you like to explain that. your your history or connection to Batman? Um, yeah, it's uh, you kind of briefly touched on it with the Neil Adams stuff mm. um, in the last episode. Um, that was where a lot of it started. Um, I, I really latched on to the uh, the the Roz the Roz aspect of it mm -hmm. um, and Talia. Um, I think it was kind of more of the the desert and swordsman kind of thing that got me with it. It was mm. kind of cool to see like um, Batman just kind of let it all out and then kind of just take the. Is because I just found it hilarious as a kid that he took the armor off and the cape but just left the cowl on. I'm <laughs> gonna leave that. Even though Roz probably knows I'm Bruce Wayne, I'm still gonna fight him with this on. Um, and then after that. Um, I kind of like would read it here and there. Um, one of the other ones that really stuck in my memory was uh, one of the Nightfall issues um, mm. when Bane broke his back. Yeah, um, classic. When, when I can really say that uh, the hardcore Batman fan kicked in was uh, the Grant Morrison run. Mm. Um, they, they're, they're, their Batman is just crazy. Um, I'm a Grant Morrison fan, but when people say they understand Grant Morrison's writing, they're lying. Um, <laughs> I just kind of go in and let them take me for the ride. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. briefly it. And then uh, you obviously really enjoyed this movie. Yes, you can see that's an <laughs> understatement. Um, yeah. Would you like to explain what Kino is? Um, it is. It is. It was more of like a the the whole term of like top tier cinema. You know, like you go in and watch it with you know a mustache and a monocle and the, the quote art house people. Um, it's more of a joke uh, for people who kind of take movies and film too seriously. Um, but but yeah, this movie was kind of unironically Kino to me. Awesome. Okay, so we are going to go through a number of, I guess, more or less categories put together here. Um, I was wondering if we should do plot, and it's not really necessary, I think, to go through and explain the plot. It'll kind of, points will come up as we go through it. Um, and at this point, if you haven't seen it, there's so many ways to see it that are, you know, free or somewhat legal so um <laughs> and obviously it's on hbo max now which is you can get a free trial for that just to watch it so um the points that we're going to be going through are uh starting off with the various inspirations for the movie from the comics um it's all yeah pretty much everything i have here is about comic stuff um the in the artistic choices which is more involved in what we are calling kino uh, aspects of the movie i guess that you could say um we'll talk a little bit about the batman suit or outfit i guess and the design and locations the design of the locations i guess um how everything was um location wise and then go into the, some of the characters obviously the riddler um, Bruce Wayne and Batman, Selina, aka Catwoman, the Batman and Catwoman dynamic, uh, Gordon and the GCPD, and then some of the other characters, the Penguin, Alfred, and Falcone. Then there's uh, some Easter eggs that are pretty fun, 
and we'll talk a little bit about the movie score, which I think is indisputably incredible, and a little bit about what is coming next for the Reeves Batman franchise. So starting off with various comic inspirations from for the movie, um, Matt, Re- Matt Reeves has said a couple of times that the three comics that inspired this movie, this Batman, are Batman Year One, The Long Halloween, and Ego. Um, this was obviously a movie that takes pr- pretty early on in his career, um, being a Batman who's still trying to figure out his proper place in Gotham. Matt Reeves has a little statement on um, his placement in time and in his career where he's working with Batman right now. He says, I didn't want the arc to be, he becomes Batman and faces off with this particular rogues gallery character. I wanted you to see an imperfect Batman who would be driven to do what he's doing in a way that was almost like a drug. He's addicted to being Batman because it's really an attempt to cope with those things in the past that we don't see. I thought that was really fun to see a version of him that definitely hadn't mastered himself and that was definitely in the process of becoming." Unquote. Um, so that was kind of what Matt Reeves's idea of the character of Batman was, and actually we'll go into a little bit more um, when we get down into the music of it, we'll go more into the Kurt Cobain side of his inspiration for, for Batman as well. Um, this just being more comic stuff, uh, year one, the long Halloween and ego. And I think a lot of that we're going to be referencing again throughout this whole episode. So, um, there's that. I know year one, we get a little bit more into, uh, in the other sections, but Ego, the story Batman Ego was by Darwin Cook. It's a story where it takes a deep dive into the Dark Knight's psyche as he struggles to balance his true self and the mask he wears as Bruce Wayne. And then obviously the long Halloween being a very clear inspiration. Um, it was a really famous graphic novel that turned Batman's crusade against his rogues into a whodunit detective style story. Um, originally this, the Batman movie, uh, from Reeves was meant to be a complete, not one-to-one, but it was supposed to be title and everything, an adaptation of The Long Halloween. Um, and along the way it kind of switched plans and so they didn't quite make it that direct of an adaptation. Um, but one major plot point that it does borrow from The Long Halloween is Carmine Falcone's surgery, which we see in the movie. Um, he talks to Bruce about how Thomas Wayne once saved his life at Wayne Manor because he was a doctor and of course with Hippocratic Oath he can't just let somebody die on his doorstep. So kind of twisted his arm that way, but being a good person more or less, Thomas Wayne went ahead and saved his life. Um, there was one movie, I, I, I don't know what this is honestly, but it's called Last Days. It's a movie from Gus Van Sant. Um, it's apparently a uh, account on the final hours of Kurt Cobain's life, which I know I mentioned the Kurt Cobain stuff. We're going to be getting into a lot more in the music, um, but that was also an inspiration for this uh, per- that particular movie, Last Days, uh, about Kurt Cobain. Anything to interject so far? Um, yeah, I'll definitely uh, kind of backpack off the yeah. the year the year one parts. Um, mm-hmm. You could definitely like you could very much read Batman Year One and kind of put in your head this is like the same thing um, that the relationship that him and Gordon have. Um, mm-hmm. And I love the point that you brought up that uh, Reeves wanted this Batman to be like very much green and him and Gordon mm-hmm. as well. Um, I loved that. That was such a cool thing to see because 
we've kind of gotten so used to like oh batman he solves it you know he's, he's a pro a, he's the yeah he's a man with the plan he's got it you know any batman can beat anybody with prep time um this this is how you see him get there um he didn't just wake up and go yes i am the world's greatest detective and right that was actually something the world's greatest detective thing is a line that's thrown at him sarcastically yes yes because he's clearly not yet <laughs> I, I absolutely love that uh, he's like yo you guys got the horrible spanish what is that it's l um <laughs> and and the the i'm kind of glad it didn't end up being a one-of-one one adaptation of long halloween because mm -hmm. um when jeff Loeb wrote long halloween he was like oh i just got the godfather but made it batman um, yes so, yeah <laughs> so, so we've kind of already Noir. seen that yes i'm glad that he kind of got the bones of that and kept that but it's it's, it's kind of it's 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 a good choice that he made um yeah nice so moving into the artistic choices i'm sure you will have a fair amount to say <laughs> um i know you had noted that the voiceover that we hear in the beginning which is apparently actual excerpts from the journal that the Pattinson Battinson is, well, we refer to him as some weird stuff through this probably. <laughs> um, there are apparently excerpts from that journal that we see him keeping, but that's what the voiceovers are from. Um, and it's just, it kind of starts that way and then it wraps up that way, which is a, a nice little full circle moment, I guess. Yes, yeah. um, there's no, there's no like lead up story. Um, teaching you the backstory about Batman or anything like that, which is normally how these things start. Um, it's a bit of a drag at this point, kind of like the uh, Peter Parker, Uncle Ben stuff. <laughs> they definitely just skipped over that for the MCU because I think audiences are very much tired of seeing the Uncle Ben story. And I think it's the same with um, the Waynes as well. So it's probably a better idea that they kind of went over that and you kind of had to rely on either what you learn along the way or prior knowledge. I think he was trying to make it so that um, you don't look at prior knowledge as much and you just kind of... Because the, Bat the, the Batman character we'll get into more in a second, but he's very much a different Batman, especially a different Bruce Wayne than we've seen. So I think that was definitely Reeves trying to um, give us a different, a different take, but... It, not start us off with that same Batman thing. I know one thing you were saying was that uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman, I guess Nolan was his big real thing was that he wanted to make this, his Batman was the real world Batman, which was, you know, not necessarily realistic, uh, but it was Batman kind of stuck in, um, yeah yeah it was what nolan did was nolan got batman and he put him in our real world versus reeves right. made batman's world real um so in like the the fantastic look of the gothic look of of gotham um and then you know even the the very cheesy thing of like the wingsuit uh it's it's practical but then it's still you know it kind of works and it makes sense where it's not this over the top thing where this guy is just flying through the air defying gravity Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, yeah just, it was just a very good thing to like do workarounds with it um, mm -hmm. instead of just kind of because there was at times like the Nolan films he was kind of almost too grounded this is like he's grounded but not to where he almost feels like you know incapacitated and can't do much we didn't do we didn't get the over explanation that we kind of have been used to seeing in Batman movies um, especially like if we go ahead if we go ahead and move on to the uh, the kind of bat suit 
segment here, um, his outfit was not something that we had to have super explained. It was, it was designed after stuff from um, the Vietnam War, military tactical stuff that one guy could put together and allow him to fight better, is what costume designer Dylan Clark said. Oh no, that was the producer Dylan Clark said of the costume designers. Um, so that's the kind of look that they went for with his outfit, but there was no like, no suiting up. Like I know the one of the big jokes was in the Clooney movie how he they literally have the the bat nipple scene. Um, I, f- I felt like that whole suit up in the rubber suit was meant to be a gag. I actually don't know if they meant it that way, but that's what it looks like now uh, because it's so cheesy and lame. And I think every Batman scene, every Batman movie has a scene like that where you see him suit up or rather, if not that, some kind of explanation of how the suit came to be, where it came from, which is what a lot more of the Nolan stuff was. Which actually, speaking of George Clooney's Batman, um, Robert Pattinson apparently wore Clooney's bat suit for a screen test. Uh, he wore it for eight hours, which caused some trouble because he was sweating profusely the entire time. Um, I think I read that they were a little bit concerned that he would have a similar reaction to uh, the real thing, which obviously uh, did not happen because he seemed to wear that just fine. And it's not made of like, what, 99% rubber? <laughs> Some of the more, um, I, I think it was slightly realistic. Um, the camera, the contact camera lenses on the one hand, that tech is wild, obviously. Uh, but on the other hand, he takes it out and he puts it on the little thing and the playback is pretty, is janky and weird. And it's, um, it's not something that came from, you know, Apple <laughs> or a big company like that. This was something that he probably put together with a weird, like, microscope viewer or something like that. And that's why it looks like that. Um, and that's the kind of thing where, realistically, that feels in line with how he's, with how everybody, everything has been set up for this Batman. The, uh, the battering actually falls in line with that as well. From the very beginning of the leaked pictures that we saw of Battinson, um, people were speculating all kinds of stuff about the the bat symbol on his chest because it was clearly made of some metal pits and I think the most dramatic thought that people had was it was made out of the gun that killed his parents, which is, I guess, appropriately emo for this Batman. I don't think he's that sentimental, though. Um, but it ended up being more realistically, more logically, I guess, batterings uh, that he would, like, pull off of there and flip open and use. Um, so that was pretty cool, I thought. A, a, a good way to store that without, like, pouches. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite bits was uh, doing the makeup. Uh, I know you really liked his his blacked out eyes under the mask. Yeah, the raccoon um, face. The funny thing that, like, just... It's just a funny little, like, real-world note on that is that you don't see him necessarily do it, but he, he rubs the makeup on his face or whatever it is that he does, and then later on you see him wearing it, and you don't have... You know, you have your bottom line of your eyelashes, and then between that and your eyeball, there's like a tiny little bit, they call it the waterline, um, that keeps your, basically your bottom eyelashes from being inside of your eyeball. Um, and um, a lot of people who do makeup, especially dark makeup around the eyes, know that you have to um, color that waterline dark if you want to be kind of seamless around your eye. Uh, they didn't show him using waterliner, but 
he's got that covered. So Batman confirmed knows about Waterliner because he does not have it is all completely covered in black. He he went to Sephora and he got his questions answered. Um it it would be very hilarious, you know, within that world that Andy Circus uh, Alfred is the one who helps him. <laughs> teaches him how to do Yeah, with the water line. You know he you teaches know. him how to fight. So. Well, yeah, it, it, the, you know, he could explain it as, you know, oh, this is what I used in the British Secret Services. This is how he used to blend into the woods. He had camouflage, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, because then they would have that, you know, kind of comical moment of like, yeah, because this is what dudes do. This is how guys do it. <laughs> kind of tagging on to the bat suit is the Batmobile. Um, which I know you really enjoyed that. You want to yes. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was, uh, it was very, it was, uh, I, I, what did, uh, Sean Gordon Murphy say? I, he said it, it was like, uh, car porn. Because um, there were <laughs> yeah. so, there were so many moments of that. Because I think throughout the movie, uh, the beginning, I think, I think you see the chassis of it. Um, then after that, you see the exhaust pipes. Then after that, you see the actual engine and a couple of pistons. Um, and then you kind of see it revving up. Uh, I look that it is very much kind of like a monster reveal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the t- and then it kind of just stalls out because it, it's, it's, <laughs> it kind of shows, you know, that whole thing of when you get this really sick, nice car built up, you're not <laughs> fully used to that power behind the pedal yet. And he is a new Batman. And he is a new Batman. And then, so you know, when you get that, you know, it's kind of when you get that really new souped-up car and you kind of put too much on the gas pedal and it kind of <laughs> Excited. Yeah, it kind of cashes it out real quick. Um, uh, that was one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. <laughs> that was so funny. I, 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 nobody else laughed, but I busted out laughing when that happened in the movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it was just cool. How and then you just kind of and then the, the the pure electric sound of it uh, just sounded like it was it was a jet engine mm-hmm. and, it, and it was just awesome. The the look of shock slash terror in Penguin's face when he sees it because you don't know what it is for like a split half second. You hear that noise in the fire light up. <laughs> yeah, that was actually, um, I was going to save it for an Easter egg, but that actually, the uh, the look of the car, as well as the flames coming out the back, was apparently, um, it was meant to be a throwback to the 66 Batman, where they had the, the was, I think that was probably the last time we saw the classic uh, muscle car, as opposed to more of the Roy Jepp Batmobile we see later on. Um Maybe not the last time, but one of the last times. But that was the one where we got the inspiration for the the flames out the back was from the '66 Batman stuff. Um, so that's pretty cool. Apparently, I, I found this. Apparently, I don't know if they meant the car itself or like the car canonically in the movie. But apparently, it's electric, which maybe it's hybrid. I don't know, but I read that it was electric, so apparently it's electric. Um, it definitely didn't sound like it. <laughs> uh, but uh, somebody commented that the entrance of the car into the movie, that sequence was inspired by the Stephen King novel Christine, which mm. is about a possessed car. And actually, that kind of reminds me this of, is... isn't that the Brian Edward Hill comic kind of like that too? Um, yeah. Uh, but... Chariot? Kind of, uh, but I've actually seen the movie Christine. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it was uh, one of those, uh, I think it was a 57 Bel Air is what it was. Huh. It was like a classic like diner car. Um, yeah, but that car just kind of <coughs> killed people. Oh, bless you. Excuse me. Uh, that car was just a straight up just murdering car. Um, yeah. The Brian, the Brian, yeah, it's very much, yeah, they do kind of murder cars. So yeah, very similar. <laughs> Next up is uh, various locations and designs of the locations. Uh, obviously, it does take place in the second year of Batman's career. 
uh, which you can see, well, he says it first, but then later on you can see it um, in his files and notebooks and things, which Batman's notebooks were apparently popularized by the Black Casebook, which is by the fantastic Grant Morrison, where Batman keeps his records in cases, which I feel like is pretty self-explanatory based on the name. Um, the movie itself, The Batman, takes place over the course of one week that stretches from October 31st to November 6th, so it is a technically Halloween movie. Um, and then we see kids who are running around in costume, we see people in general in costume, but um, one of the... They were, they were being referenced as a Joker gang originally, and I don't think that's quite accurate to say after having seen the movie because it is just a lot of... Uh, skulls and Dia de los Muertos stuff, which is more in line with Halloween than the Joker. Um, but one thing that was kind of interesting about those that particular kid or gang of kids was um, one of the one of the he he ended up being the one who um, d chooses not to beat the dude up or something like that. Um, he is actor Jay Lycurgo which may not be how you say that, but he played Tim Drake in season three of Titans, which is a very strange coincidence. Um, I, I don't think that is meant to mean anything. It's just a funny, weird coincidence. <laughs> As for a few of the specific locations, City Hall, at least the interior of it, was a custom-built set in northern London, and the Iceberg Lounge is a actual nightclub in London, um, which is called Printworks and apparently used to be a newspaper factory. Uh, much of the movie was filmed in Scotland and Chicago, which is where they get, most likely from the Scotland side of things, the really, really good gothic look of Gotham. I think this is the first time that we've seen Batman living in a tower, as it's Gotham Tower, or not Gotham Tower, it's Wayne Tower that he lives in, right? It's, yes, yeah. It's, I know we've seen Wayne Towers, obviously, but that Wayne Manor was always its own thing, as yeah. opposed to this one, it's all in the city. And it's and it's kind of funny how, like, the last couple interpretations of Batman, um, and then I'm kind of noticed maybe more so in the comics, they've kind of started to stray away from Wayne Manor being mm -hmm. a thing. Um, yeah, even in the Nolan stuff, we ended up in the penthouse. Yeah, we ended up in the penthouse, and I think in the Batfleck, the, it was just burned right. down. Right, yeah. Um, and in this one, they donated it to the orphanage, and that's what the orphanage became, and then that became run down. Mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of funny how they're like, yeah, we don't need him to live outside of the city. We kind of need him to be, like, yeah. in the city. <laughs> they, I know, uh, I think part of the reason why they historically stayed in the manor outside the city was because it was convenient for the Batcave. Yeah. Um, and then he could be like, yeah, I'm out here away from central Gotham and I can do whatever I want because nobody's going to see me doing stuff out here <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Starting in on the characters of the movie, first we have the Riddler, who was played by Paul Dano. Um, or is it Dano? I'm not okay. sure. Whichever one, you know yeah. what we're talking about. Um, his name in the movie is supposedly Edward Nashton, which is at times, depending on continuity, the name that they give the Riddler to have, um, that he was apparently his legal name before he changed it in the comics to be Edward Nigma, which is the famous Enigma joke, <laughs> gag, riddle. Um, but it's never actually revealed if the Riddler in the movie's name is Edward Nashton or if that's just one of his other aliases, which we will touch on again when we get to the Easter egg section. There's an interesting theory 
based on a couple different Easter eggs um, that people have about the real identity of the Riddler. The Riddler's uh, supervillain persona was obviously very inspired by the Zodiac Killer, um, who used to taunt police with cryptic messages, occasionally in the form of greeting cards, and he took trophies from his victims. Um, and disguised his messages with um, various elaborate ciphers. And I, yeah, they never they never figured out who he was. I think there's various theories, but nothing was ever confirmed. No one was ever caught. Uh, another way that he was inspired by the Zodiac Killer is his kind of question mark emblem that the Riddler uses in the movie is definitely stylized with the um, gun sight-esque design that is reminiscent of the Zodiac Killer's ways that he would sign his letters and things. Um, I know you really liked how uh, Paul Dano was such a good, like, incel. Yeah, he, he was, <laughs> um, it, he was the, 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 the average uh, incel 4chan user. Um, and, and I kind of like how they they kind of subtly showed that and, like, you know, his webpage of, like, you know, the group of subtly radicalizing people. Because um, I feel like, you know, that's kind of something that is that is kind of a real issue that is happening mm-hmm. with people now um kind of things they see on the internet and then those people prey on groups like that yeah um but it's also i think you kind of said it a while ago how they're kind of shifting you know the the incel bad guys or mm. you know they're not like the muscle-bound dudes anymore it's it's the the flimsy guys with glasses you know now <laughs> who, who can go on the internet and get you know a group of like-minded people to do something wild and crazy. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's how the uh, lonely extremists in our world can be radicalized online very easily and end up becoming basically domestic terrorists, if not literally. Um, I had a, I was reading an article from Den of Geek, and they had this quote which had me kind of chuckle because they did not pull any punches, um, and it is somewhat political. So if you have an issue with that, too bad. Uh, it's there. In the, it says they're uh, talking about the um, the people who the Riddler gangs up with, right? It says their military slash survi- paramilitary slash survivalist cosplay aesthetic sure does recall a lot of the clowns who have done things like storm the United States Capitol, for example. Oh, it's nice when you have uh, progressive people in comics. <laughs> uh, the design, I forgot to mention this before, the design of uh, Paul Dano's Riddler is obviously, again, very inspired by the Zodiac Killer police sketches, um, and his, the, his, his methods of killing people, <laughs> starting off with, what is it, the mayor, I guess, um, very violent, pretty brutal, uh, some might say that they would remind you of the Saw franchise, especially the, the ones that were, like, machinery trapped people's head, going mm-hmm. around people's heads, that was, whew, that was definitely very Saw-esque. Um, but one thing that was kind of funny, he's, he does become pretty obsessed with the Batman, um, and then obviously the Batman kind of has to re-portray what it is that he wants to be, um, but his obsession with Batman is really interesting because he has this very sick, twisted, like, skewed, uh, way of viewing what is happening between him 
and the Batman and I guess the rest of Gotham to an extent. But in his perspective, um, all those little notes that he's leaving behind at the crime scenes, well, from our perspective in Batman's and the GCPD and pretty much everybody, the assumption was that the Riddler was leaving, like, obviously sick little teases and notes to lead him to the next victim. And then towards the end of the movie, you find out that the Riddler was basically leaving love notes for Batman, um, which he was writing in code, so that Batman, in his mind then, could help him on his next pursuit of murder. Um, really, really backwards, but it's kind of funny how he, how the Batman trying to stop these kinds of things ends up, in turn, uh, creating a villain by his very existence, kind of. Um, yeah, and I'd kind of like to uh, go back to the the Riddler stuff of, you know... Because in a sense, you know, they do show it in the movie of people who were out there championing his cause, you know, with mm -hmm. his sign saying the Riddler was right. Which, which kind of, in a sense, you do get because you end up finding out the whole thing of the renewal fund was a lie. Mm -hmm. um, it was just them using to, you know, keep the money for themselves and keep the rich rich. Um, but it's just kind of funny how, you know, this this guy we think is bad, but in some people in this world, they think he's doing good, but in a way he kind of is. He, he is exposing the corruption, but it's kind of the thing you said, you know, Batman is realizing, you know, we more or less have the same idea of taking out the corrupt mm -hmm. people, but you may, he's, he's not getting the effects he intended mm -hmm. to, you know, he wanted people to stand up for themselves and expose this. And then he sees this guy like, yeah, man, you're showing us how to do this. And he sees this guy <laughs> just dropping bodies and he's mm -hmm. like, okay, maybe I need to reevaluate, you know, what I am. Um, and then kind of also the, the guy he sees at the funeral that not him as Batman, but Bruce Wayne just casually bumps into and he's like, oh yeah, the, the rich guy deserves that. Um, and then you see, he sees him oh, later yeah. as Batman, and then he sees the other guy as his, quote, you know, Riddler persona. Um, and the, but the, he doesn't know it's Bruce Wayne he just talked to, or it's Bruce Wayne in the suit. Um, and then this is when he really starts to realize that the effects he's Yeah, he doesn't know the dude's Batman, he just yeah. thinks he's Bruce Wayne. And then he beats the guy up after he's fighting the scene, and the guy says he's vengeance, and that's when it really sets in that, okay, you know... Yeah, maybe, later when they're at the political rally or whatever it was, and the Riddler's people attack, he's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's when, it, you know, the Riddler just isn't this, this one guy is in this is isolated incident. You know, these other people are seeing this and getting inspired for not what he originally intended. Yeah, the Riddler actually does represent a small, you know, an amount of people, be the, a small amount of people. It does represent Gothamites in some way. After the Riddler, obviously, we need to talk about Bruce Wayne, who is... I hope I don't have to tell you, Batman. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, we did not see in this movie, to some people's chagrin, but my utter delight, we didn't see any classic Bruce Wayne the way that we think about him. What we saw here was the recluse Bruce Wayne of my dreams. And that's a type of spider, isn't it? It is the brown Now I'm thinking about spider bruce wayne okay um but yeah so if you think about the logic of it it uh, makes a lot of sense how would it make sense that a man who grew up with the trauma and history that bruce wayne has or had whatever um would turn out to be some kind of playboy who shows up on the front of magazines like people and stuff um with all kinds of ladies on his arms all the time it doesn't really make sense to ha to to come from the kind of background that he has and the training and everything and be that still um you can actually see that portrayed his 
his kind of being more of a um, homebody, you can see that portrayed really well in Batman Imposter, which is a three-issue, fairly recent DC Black, within the last year, DC Black Label title, which uh, I just found out while I was writing this and doing some research on the people involved in the movie. <laughs> uh, Matson Tomlin, who wrote... Uh, Batman imposter was also the script writer of the Batman for Matt Reeves so that makes a lot of sense that he, that he would go move on then to uh, make a Batman comic with a similar Bruce Wayne character that's pretty cool definitely recommend that um, it's not something you need DC Black Label is the publishing house that it's under DC by with um, it's under DC and, and it's, uh, DC Black Label is non-canon, usually, actually I think always, 18 and up stories um, in the DC universe. So you don't need any kind of, it's just three issues, that's it, self-contained thing. You don't need anything else besides the three issues. But anyway, um, so you don't, I actually saw this, I could not believe it, some dude on Twitter was like, oh yeah, we're definitely gonna see in the second Batman how his Bruce Wayne persona is gonna become a lot better, he's gonna start dating all these chicks and blah, what? What? He's not just suddenly gonna do a complete 180 with his personality and become like this Rico Suave dude, what? That's, <laughs> that just would not make sense, I think that would get him really, really under the public eye in a way that Batman does not need. <laughs> not just because, of course, he would be in the public eye more, but because that's suspicious as hell. <laughs> Going from being an utter recluse to wide out in spotlight on a red carpet. It's like, that would be very suspicious. Uh, again, especially with his, the history that Bruce Wayne has. Um, him being... The Battenson being Bruce Wayne is only going to help him uh, be Batman by his wealth and whatever connections his family might have had. And not really him even, but his family. So those would be kind of minor anyway. Um, so I don't think there's a point to making him a uh, like a classic tomboy, not tomboy, classic playboy Bruce Wayne. Um, because he doesn't really need that. Why? Well, how would that improve his Batmaning? Um, yeah, and yeah, to kind of backpack off what you're saying, um, I, I, do, I don't think we're going to see that 180 change. Um, if anything, it would make more sense to, for us to see him uh, double down on being a recluse. Um, so, we, you, you know, remembering, you know, how this would look from the point of view of somebody in Gotham, um, somebody just attempted to kill him. Um, <laughs> the explosion went off, it, it caught Alfred instead of him. But if somebody who's already known as a recluse gets a bomb sent to their house when they're not even going out and it blows up, I think that would even get people to understand, yeah, we're probably never going to see Bruce Wayne again or, you know, very rarely, if ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he would he would definitely not want to be more public after that. No, which, which I think, if anything, will only help him later on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I really uh, enjoyed the his fighting in this um, because previous batman films the fight choreography really wasn't fluid movements or actual fight choreography um in this it was like very much like rhythm based fighting like in the arkham games um, which was kind of cool mm -hmm. um he really gets to show it off in the very beginning when he uh, messes up that dude in face paint mm -hmm. um and then you kind of what you said earlier um with the lenses um mm -hmm. it's very much reminiscent to the arkham games as well of detective vision of kind of 
recording and cataloging everything. Um, like as when he got Selena to wear them and she's walking around the club and he's like, you know, mm-hmm. face scanning people. It was so <laughs> cool. Um, but it wasn't perfect. She had to stare for a ex- little bit. She had to stare. And, and, it's, and it's cool because it's like, all right, this, you know, this is something he literally made in his back cave. This isn't something that's going to mm-hmm. be completely, you know, redefined and perfect. Um, and then kind of saying what I, you know, finishing up what I said earlier, you know, between, you know, the interaction with Riddler and then also the Riddler, you know, guy that he saw on the bridge that he fought at the, towards the end of the film, um, he says, I don't need to just be vengeance anymore. Um, and then you kind of see that backpack off later on when he has that kid that he helps out. Um, but it's, it's Sim, him seeing full circle that I can't just go around and throw punches. I also have to hand out helping hands too. Did you hear him call it a film? I think I did. You did. You called him a film. Okay, well. Yeah. I make fun of him for calling it a film. <laughs> um, some fun facts about Robert Pattinson's involvement in the movie and becoming Batman. Uh, first was he apparently did not know before starting to do research for the character that Batman was a detective. Uh, he explained that he did not know that the hero was known as the world's greatest detective, and he said he felt like an idiot when he found out, which is, of course, understandable. Um, he also said that he was asked to have his voice as Batman changed. He was asked to do it differently by Warner Brothers because he was basically whispering his lines, which he explained because all of the other actors had a, quote, gruff or kind of gruff, gravelly thing, unquote. He wanted to go in a different direction and do something completely original, which obviously did not work out. He ended up doing a bit of a Batman voice, but it's not its not the gruff, gravelly thing. It's it just subtle. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit more subtle. <laughs> not, not him trying to be a, a death metal singer. <laughs> Selena Kyle is, of course, played by Zoe Kravitz. We meet her while she's pretty much taking care of a friend who lives in the apartment with her and does kind of the same line of work, which is vaguely call girl-esque, which is kind of how stuff happens when we first see her in the comics in year one. Um, She also does have a sister in the comics, which is still canon, I do believe. Um, She is a really important character in the Catwoman volume one, which is actually called My Sister's Keeper. Uh, That is not who this friend is based off of. I'm pretty sure the friend that she has here who's killed in the movie was based off of uh, the friend that she lives and works with in Batman year one, which is also... um, I guess it's towards the end of the movie that we see her in the the corset with the the skinny I don't know weren't jeans they were like elastic pants but the the, the black pants and the corset obviously her short haircut um, and the boots right just then mm-hmm. the, then the boots and that was pretty close almost one to one from her uh, an, a really famous outfit that we first see her in in Batman Year One the main cat suit that she wears with the kind of mask. The mask is from year one as well, more or less. It's based off of that. But the cat suit is just kind of generally based off of generic cat suits. I don't think it's anything too specific to her or any costume she's ever had. Um, I just keep thinking of the Jenny Frizen. Uh, she did a cover of Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman in that cat suit. She did a fantastic job. It's, it's for... Um, it's for one of the Catwoman issues currently going. Not her current outfit at all, but I just whenever I think of the uh, the Zoe Kravitz Catwoman, I think of that that Jenny Frison cover because I am obsessed. 
And apparently it was Zoe Kravitz's idea herself for Selena to have those super long nails because she was unable to get manicures during lockdown. She is quoted to say, I called Matt and was like, I have this idea. We should do crazy, bitchy, wonderful nails. Nope, nail polish on them so they look more like claws, which is pretty genius. And it did work out that was very claw-like. Um, and honestly with the way that fashion is right now, they are completely in line with what you would expect to see on a woman of her style in modern times. I guess this movie takes place in modern times. I would say so. Yeah, yeah there's no reason not to think that. Uh, with those claws, she, in the movie, scratches, obviously, Falcone's face, which is something that is more than likely taken from, again, Batman Year One, where she scratches Falcone's face in the street. At the end of the movie, the Batman, she says that she is. She tells Bruce slash. She doesn't find out that he's Bruce in this, does she? No, she does not. Interesting. No. Um, she tells Bruce. Well, she tells Batman then uh, that she is going to go to Bloodhaven. Is it Bloodhaven or Bloodhaven? It's Bloodhaven, right? I, I think it's Bloodhaven because in the comics it has. It has two the little, little like, dots like over about, Uber. Yeah. So. Bloodhaven doesn't sound right to me, but it might sound. But Bloodhaven probably sounds wrong to other people. So whatever, Bloodhaven. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's a fictional city. Obviously, if it wasn't fictional, we would not be having this question of how to say it. Um, and it's it's I think just a modern history. Nightwing's home, or more or less base in the comics. I don't think he was really there in the like in the past, right? He's just Robin and Gotham in the past. Yeah, and then whenever he breaks off from Bruce, then he does Blood, that's where Blood he Haven. goes. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think, Bloodhaven, Bloodhaven, however it's meant mm. to be said, is basically the, the equivalent of uh, New Jersey to New York, if Gotham mm. is New York. That's right, yeah. yeah. I remember hearing that. Um, a couple of quotes from Zoe Kravitz again. One was, the cats were the hardest thing to control during the shooting. We were doing, literally, cat wrangling. We were doing crazy stunts and, like, all that was fine, but getting a cat to sit in one place, impossible. Uh, and she was also scheduled for, quote, cat time with her on-screen cats so that she could get to know them better, which is awesome. I mean, and job. getting paid ridiculous amounts of money at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, she also, <laughs> this is a quote that I thought was absolutely hilarious because there had to be people there taking care of the cats, right? Because there was a whole bunch of cats on, on set for when they needed them. Um, so she says also, me and Rob would be doing a scene and there are these cat ladies tucked away and pretending not to be there. <laughs> so in my head, I can just pick, I, I'm picturing a stage like, like a theater because obviously that's how movies work, right? Um, <laughs> But on the edge, you get the little little old lady with the gray hair and the bunch of caps in her purse. <laughs> That's just a really... I, I love that image. The bat and the cat romance was not just one of the more important parts of the movie, um, and I think probably of the franchise going forward, but also one of my favorite. They had really great chemistry, and it was obviously... Uh, the best, I think, bat and cat dynamic that we have ever had in live action. Um, in a recent interview, Matt Reeves told Den of a Geek that Alan J. Pakula's neo-noir Clute, which I guess is a movie, was the biggest influence on the bat-cat dynamic. I did a very brief once-over of what that all, what Clute is. It's like a detective who hooks up with a call girl 
something like that. Uh, but uh, aside from that, I know that might be from Reeves, but I know that uh, Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz really enjoyed uh, taking inspiration from Tom King's work uh, on the Bat-Cat relationship, which does span his 85 issues of Batman, 12, well, actually 13 of Bat-Cat, plus a whole bunch of other one-shots and anthology stories all between there. So it's, it's a lot of history, and obviously they've been off and on again through the decades, but they are... Oh, it's a touchy subject, but they are getting married. <laughs> because a couple of years ago, Tom King had Batman propose to Catwoman, and then uh, she said yes, and then they ended up not getting married, and it was a whole thing people were upset about, and, and now in Bat-Cat they are going to be getting married officially, as far as we know. <laughs> um, um, yeah, to to also backpack off your, your comments about mm -hmm. the chemistry, um, you could definitely feel it. Uh, between them and then also uh, it wasn't overly you know uh, lustful between them mm -hmm. um, it was more of like curious about each other and like I they, they they were both very much people who love the unknown and peeling back the layers of something to get it um, and then a story I had heard too was that um, they brought her in for, for the test reading with Robert um, and then apparently like they only did her and only her because uh Matt Reeves said he was sitting there watching them and the chemistry between them was just electric and he was like, he cancelled the rest of the readings the rest of the day and was like, she's the one we don't need to see anybody else. Um, so that just lets you know that like if that kind of chemistry there, like they're in good hands and then, yeah, just like she said, this is probably my favorite Bat-Cat interpretation dynamic they've done on screen. Um, it just mm -hmm. nails it so well between them. It's kind of funny um looking at some of the artwork uh, hmm. Clayman being one of the ones in particular during the Tom King various eras of the Tom King's uh, Batman-Catwoman relationship that he's been writing out uh, over the past couple of years um, Clayman drew a wildly attractive Bat-Cat couple of Clayman is I don't think capable of drawing unattractive characters just like Joel Jones um but he would draw Batman and Catwoman in this very particular way. I guess David Finch kind of did as well, where it was a very beefy, very ripped, thick-ass thighs, you know, pecs, and, you know, other muscles. Um, and then you have Catwoman, who is, you know, you know, muscular or whatever herself, she's fine, but uh, very petite. She is not just shorter than him by a very large amount. She is, like half of his width <laughs> and he could probably he, he's drawn as like being a, it's kind of like uh manga oftentimes the dudes in manga are drawn with enormous hands well she's just drawn very small so that he looks like he's a lot bigger um or they just compliment each other that way and it's kind of funny because you more or less would think oh that's not really the average couple's dynamic, right? And it's, and it's not. In reality, it's definitely not. Um, but then you see Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz on screen in their outfits. And that that's Clay Mann's Bat-Cat right there. There you get the big... Uh, Robert Pattinson is not necessarily a big dude, but the way that they had him, you know, the padding and stuff, compared to extremely petite Zoe Kravitz, who is in a very tight suit, which probably had a corset under it, if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. Um, of some kind, waist trainer of some kind, um, but wow, like that was, you would never expect to see like a live action Bat-Cat with that physical dynamic, and it worked, but it wasn't, you're right, it wasn't the lustful thing, 
Um, None of them, even when they did kiss, it was kind of more like goodbye in a way. (laughs) Um, And and they're, I just, I just keep thinking it was, they just became bonded very quickly um, because they were both ended up chasing down the same people for different reasons. And then her reasons ended up being his reasons as well, a little bit all tied up together. But yeah, they just, they just became very bonded very quickly. Um, and closely without even knowing much about each other just their motives was all they really needed and i was gonna say uh, also whenever i'm um, the bit when he follows her on the motorcycle oh i love and, that <laughs> and, uh, and he's just kind of you know watching her you know talk to her friend um and then he oh. watches her uh get suited up and i think it's kind of when he like you you, you they get they cut out of the camera and you see him like back up from the the binoculars and kind of like his eyes kind of light up and he watches her like you know jump and crawl down that pole and like twip around and do some like, and you see his eyes stuff. kind of like you like, see him light oh. up and then he immediately because he's like oh this she's is... not just the pretty thing she is capable well and then it's not only that like he looks at that and goes somebody like me you know different yeah somebody who who goes out here and the face creature they put of out, the night yeah the face they put out every day is not the face of who they are mm-hmm. you know it was very cool and how they nailed that um, that wasn't that wasn't the motorcycle thing that I was thinking of. It was the end, the end mm. of the movie when they get on the motorcycles <laughs> and go their separate ways. Oh my god, that was so cute because um, a couple of reasons. Gosh, but it's Selena. You know, she takes off, and then Batman it takes him a solid twenty seconds probably to get on his motorcycle and go. And she could have been gone, like just already disappeared. Uh, but she wasn't. She waited for him, or at least went very slowly. And then you see. They show it. He catches up, and she speeds back up, and the two of them go, and they kind of, like, she goes a little bit ahead, and then he goes a little bit ahead, and then she goes a little bit, kind of, like, racing a little bit, and uh, they, they just drive along for a couple of, like, a minute or so on the screen, a little montage of them motorcycling along together with that goddamn awesome music, um, and then they get to whatever point is he goes left and she goes right and they kind of stop there for a second and look at each other and go their separate ways. It's this kind of thing where they didn't need any words because again they just became very bonded by their experiences. Like they just suddenly know each other very well based off of having seen their moralities play out over the course of the movie. Jim Gordon is played by Jeffrey Wright who actually has had quite the career in the past five years. Really has just taken off. You get DCEU, you get Marvel, you get Westworld, probably a few other things too. James Bond movie. James Bond movie. I tell you, he has really had a great couple of years. But anyway, uh, he is very early off in his career, just like Batman. Um, I love their bro dynamic, <laughs> their bromance dynamic. Um, if you didn't see it, you weren't watching. I'm not serious about the romance part of that, just the bro part. Um, but he was, he was great. He was a really, really great portrayal of Gordon, especially a slightly younger Gordon, pre-responsibilities of commissioner, and I would get pre-responsibilities of a wife and daughter as well. He does not mention them. I don't think he would be the kind of guy who would mention them if he did have them, but again, I, I don't think it would really make sense to bring either of those characters in because why would we care about Barbara daughter because Batgirl's not going to be showing up in the first couple of years of him being Batman. That would be odd. I mean, they could, but why? Um, and then I feel like if he had a wife, we would have figured that out at some point in the story. Yeah. And yeah, cause he's very much seems like he's still committed 100% mm-hmm. to only 
disbelief. He seems that he's married to his work in yes. a trying to gain um, influence and reputation sense. And, and you can kind of see that he's he feels that he's fighting a losing battle but doesn't want to admit it yet because uh, I, I think whenever he was talk whenever they were talking about the, the case of who Riddler was killing, he's like, I worked that case and he's like, You don't have anything to worry about, you're a good cop. <sighs> uh, it's just stuff like that. And he's like, Oh yeah, one of the few good cops left in Gotham. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordon is always bringing Batman to the the scenes, which are oddly poorly lit. But um, that's why that's kind of why the bro, the BFF, they're BFFs because Gordon will just like, I don't know, text him. It's it's the bat signal, right? He's, he'll put up his little he'll he'll text him with the bat signal, and Batman shows up, and they go and they go on an adventure together. <laughs> they're they're bo- they're buddies. And they're starting off their career. They're gonna take Gotham by storm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, every time, uh, I know you liked the, the tension of every time yeah. that Batman would walk into one of the GCPD crime scenes. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely loved how, um, like in the, the beginning of the movie when, uh, the scene of him just walking down the hallway and then the camera is, it's, it's shown from your point of view and just all the cops just grilling this guy because they, they've only heard the rumors. They don't know what, who he is mm-hmm. or what he's capable of. And then you just see like. Gordon walking him in. I love when I, th- I think it was uh, Ramirez or something like that. He stops him. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Gordon's like, no, he's with me. He, he kind of vouching for him. Then it's it's then as he walks in, he doesn't say anything. And then all the crime scene people are taking photos. Um, and then he's just walking around himself, just kind of observing it all. Mm-hmm. And then Gordon comes over to him and asks him a question. It, it's, it's 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 kind of funny how it's just like, yeah, man, just let him in. And then everybody's just. We don't know if he's going to help us. We don't know mm-hmm. if he's going to snap. Like, we don't know if he's going to steal anything. It's just the the awesome awesomeness of just, like, how tense this guy is because you have no idea who he is or what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I really liked how um, every time he walked into one of the crimes, especially at the beginning, it was super obvious. I think I said it before. Robert Pattinson is not a necessarily big dude. He's, I think what six feet tall or something like that yeah um batman isn't isn't canonically exactly a big dude he's tall but he's not clark kent i guess whatever i hopefully hopefully you get what i mean but um it was really funny the first thing that i noticed when um battinson walks into the room with the bookshelves there you see he's flanked by these cops who are just like looking at the bookshelves or whatever. And they're both significantly shorter than him. So I just, I kind of chuckled to myself a little bit because, you know, Robert Pattinson is not necessarily a a very tall guy. So they definitely picked out short dudes to play these cops, (laughs) which I I just find that to be funny because it's just part of the, the magic of cinema (laughs) making how to make Batman look like a big imposing person, small cops. (laughs) Um, and then there is uh, a couple of funny lines. It was um, one of, you know, Batman notoriously doesn't use guns. Gordon is a cop. Uh, so there's the one line Batman tells Gordon, no guns, in which Gordon replies, yeah, man, that's your thing. Mm-hmm. It sounds way better when he says it, I promise. Um, he does his classic sneak away from Gordon maneuver when they're in the orphanage, which everything everybody loves to see. My favorite thing, though, is when other people do that to Batman. That's my favorite. Um, And then we have a quote from Matt Reeves. No, sorry, from Jeffrey Wright. Uh, So he says, Matt Reeves 
very cleverly just decided, one, that we're in year two of Batman's story, but also that Gordon is still a lieutenant, which gives him the opportunity to be more active and to be in the middle of the grime of the city, and also in the core of the plot, because we're focused on the set of mysterious... Oh, mysteries and celebrating Batman as the world's greatest detective. Gordon is alongside him and they bring their detective skills together in a way that I don't think we've necessarily delved into deeply in the past but is very much in line with the history of the franchise. I was excited to see that Gordon was so central to Matt's vision for this thing and excited to play him. Uh, yeah, it, to, to uh, go off a, a couple of like funny exchanges, mm -hmm. um, it was very much of like they, they've had a, a countless night, late nights together, mm -hmm. you know, just putting their heads together, working on things, trying to figure things out. Um, one of my favorite ones was, uh, he's like, something about, like, they're talking about trust, and he's like, trust, man? He's like, we've been working for two years, I don't even know your name. <laughs> Not even who he's are under that mask, just his name. Like, hey, man, he's like, Bill, Jim, Bob, what's your name? <laughs> um, and then uh, another one of my favorite scenes with, uh, with them, with those two as well as the GCPD was, um, when he gets knocked out um, from the bomb that was uh, put on the DA and he wakes up um, just surrounded by police officers in this cage. Um, and then just like the absolute, they're all just like there, like they all want a piece of him, they want to find out who he is. And then they're slowly starting to figure out that there are there is a lot of corruption inside the police department, so they have no idea who to trust. Um, and then so they catch the guy, the, the, the dirty cop, who's like, why is, why is the guy who works homicide coming down here? Um, in the reaction they have, it's like, he's like, hey, I just need two minutes with him. And they have this intense scene of, like, real close, and you think he's, like, rolling him in. He's like, we need to get you out of here, man. Uh, he, then, he, then he punches him, and he's like, and then he sees him later, and he's like, he could have held back. Oh, I was holding back. Um, just that whole sequence from the tenseness of them, like, both coming together and, like, reading the room and going, yeah, there's something bad going on in here. We can't let what we know get out. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it's, it's amazing. I really want to see that relationship grow. A couple of other important characters from the movie, first being, of course, the Penguin, Oswald Cobblepot, played by Colin Farrell, who is unrecognizable. Uh, in the movie, he is, as he is in the comics and has been for over 25 years, the proprietor of the Iceberg Lounge, which first appeared in Detective Comics in 1995. Um, he is usually seen with a cigar of some kind, but Warner Brothers would actually not let him smoke any kind of thing on screen. So that's why he doesn't have that. Yeah, uh, it was it was just simply amazing for him to like get into I think they said it took him about four hours to get into it and another four to get out or something um but but I've always kind of said that Colin Farrell does his best work when he's not just you know playing this heartthrob guy when you get him like this crazy meaty character to play which come on Oswald Cobblepot mm -hmm. that is the perfect crazy person for him to play um and it was just amazing how he really embodied that um he even nailed it down with the accent I'm pretty sure I think he's Irish I think so. Yeah, so to hear him nail that New York accent, um, <laughs> like when you first meet him, like when he's like, oh, you're him, uh, you're everything I say about you and more. Like, it, it was perfect. <laughs> um, and I believe he was getting a TV show or something. Oh, yeah. As well. yeah. Yeah, he's getting an origin TV show, which, yes. of course, will star, star, star Colin <laughs> Farrell again as well. Uh, Andy Circus played good old Alfred Pennyworth. Um, he, in this version, is again a former British museum. Ooh. 
British Marine <laughs> who presumably trained Bruce. Actually, it's not presumably. I did remember after writing this that there was a line where he does say something about having trained him. So he does confirm he did train Bruce. And I guess you would say presumably taught him many of the other skills that he uses as Batman. Uh, this is the first time that we've seen him using a walking stick, which of course happens because somebody tries to kill Bruce and it does not work. And by somebody, of course, that is the Riddler. Uh, Carmine, oh, there is, uh, just Andy Serkis and Robert Pattinson did do one really, really excellent scene of the two of them after yeah. Alfred gets blown up, not really, uh, in the hospital where Bruce shows up after thinking that he's been killed, shows up to see him, um, there in the hospital bed, and he's, he's a really great moment of, um, fighting through the toxic masculinity to look his father figure in the eye and tell him that he loves him, so... That was a really nice, uh, you, you don't really get that in masculine topics like Batman too much. So that was nice that they actually showed that. Uh, yeah, the, the only complaint I could really have about, uh, Alfred in this was that there, there should have been a little bit more of him. Um, but <laughs> I understand he can, that was kind of why he wasn't in the second half of the movie is that he left to go film that Venom, the, the second Venom movie, um. <laughs> In hindsight, it's always twenty twenty, but I kind of wish he would have stayed and done a little bit more of this, but that just kind of leaves us wanting more for him in the next film. <laughs> um, and yeah, John Turturro. Uh, I, oh, I, yes, I, Carmine Falcone. Yeah, it, it was it was amazing, and I, and I, and it was really funny, because and I know in recent memory he's kind of in more funny movies like Mr. Deeds and some other things here and there. He was incredibly passive in Severance, and then yes. to turn around and days later see him in The Batman as Carmine Falcone... <laughs> It, it worked. The the very passive, soft-spoken, it worked for his gangster-like character. It was great. Yeah. And, and I can't remember, I, I cannot remember what the first time I ever saw him was not the Jurassic Park movies or anything like that. It mm. was, I think it was a mob movie. Hmm. So seeing him play the older mobster was really cool to see because it's like, oh, nice. This is the Throwback. very first, yeah, the very first thing I saw him as. It's kind of cool to see him go back to that. And he, he, he was in it like he never left. He was very much that sleazy murky in the shadows mob boss guy they do reveal that he is selena kyle's father in the movie which he's also her father in the comics which was introduced in a 1999 storyline dark victory which was jeff loeb and tim sales follow-up to the long halloween we have made it to the easter eggs portion of the episode uh, starting off with the classic i am vengeance it's something that we've it's pretty much just been his calling card well i feel like uh in recent batman things kind of since nolan um definitely popularized after that uh, but this was actually much much of an older phrase going back to kevin conroy in the nothing to fear episode of the batman animated series uh where he says i am vengeance i am the knight I am Batman, which is probably not at all like his delivery was, but I do my best. Could you imitate it? I. You're not I gonna think do you that. Did great, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think you did great. I did great. Thanks. <laughs> um, I know you really like the theory of the possible Easter egg for Venom, or Bane Venom, I guess not Venom Bane. I was gonna say Venom Bane. Bane Venom. Do you want to talk about that theory? Yeah, it, it's it's on the on the third and fourth rewatch. Uh, it's it takes place um, in the, the in the fight in the what is it? 
it's it's theme. Madison. Yeah, it's basically what is meant to be Madison Square Garden, but yeah. Gotham's equivalent. Um, yeah, he's fighting all the Riddler guys. It's whenever um, he gets blasted with the shotgun, saves Selena, and then the guy grabs him. Um, the it's just like watching it again. The more and more I saw it, the more I definitely feel like that is like the very beginning and early stages of Venom. Um, if you're not sure what Venom is, um, Venom is what Bane actually uses to pump himself up. Um, and get those hulking muscles mm-hmm. um, and then the placement of where he puts it is right on the top of his palm um, which is exactly where Bane injects it and then the fact that it's a light green thing and then as soon as he injects it he just gets filled up with rage and then it's just hit with the second third because right before that he got blasted point blank with a shotgun like that took a lot out of him mm-hmm. um, and the fact that he just jumped right after that literally picks the guy up and slams him down and then punches him so hard cracks the mask and his glasses and that for that couple of seconds, he's kind of not sure who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, just more than... And you, and you see that his vision is, like, a bit messed up, and he's, like, it probably has to do with the heart pounding and every, yes. adrenaline. And, and and just that kind of whole thing, if that does end up being that, I could very much see them adapting the storyline Batman Venom into these movies, which is a storyline where after Bruce gets his back broken, he gets addicted to Venom for a short period mm-hmm. of time to deal with the pain and fight crime. Mm-hmm. I could very much see Robert Pattinson kind of going through that i guess you could call it substance abuse problem yeah in a way yeah um it'll kind of be like cool another layer to add to him if they do do that if you want to see in a movie um the bat the batman thing the bane venom being used uh whichever one it was batman or robin was it the one with poison ivy yes yes uh, that, in that one you have the best on-screen poison ivy of all time mm-hmm. uh makes she kind of makes bane in a way, she ma- she messes up messes with his like serum, but then you get like, you see really clearly how it works. You inject him, and he bulks up like a balloon. It actually looks quite painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I really enjoy that they kind of gave us a teaser for was that Martha Wayne, her she comes from the Arkham family um, in this universe, which is similar to Batman Earth One, not to be mixed up with Year One. Um, Martha's last name in the DC canon is, or her maiden name in the DC canon is actually Kane. Um, that's how you get the Cassandra Kane being her niece, Batman's cousin, Batwoman, etc. Um, but I really like that they did the, um, the Arkham thing here. Because uh, I believe it was the Murphyverse, Sean Gordon Murphy, who did a similar um, kind of setup of old Gotham was the Waynes and the Arkhams were like the ruling families. Um, And I I really like that this feels like a world they could definitely fill in a lot of that backstory that way if they wanted to. Um, It's so the end of this film... um kind of you know ends with gotham being flooded and you know them declaring martial law Mm -hmm. which is the 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 absolute perfect setup um for no man's land um which i remember correctly um basically it's the same thing happens like gotham ends up getting walled off from the rest of the uh this the town or cities or whatever it is um and then they just declared a martial law zone and the government doesn't go in and touch it which I think they ended up saying in year one was the Riddler kind of did something similar with blowing up the seawalls of Gotham. So it kind mm. of ended up wrapping that up so it all works together. Zero year. Zero year, yeah. That was what it was, a Snyder and Capullo. Um, so it's kind of very much the same thing as that, um, which is another fun thing about No Man's Land is that that's where you also saw the first appearance of Cassandra Wusan, which ended up being uh, the first New Age Batgirl. 
Um, so just like a nice little fun tidbit there. But No Man's Land was very fun to see Batman, you know, kind of actually, you know, of what's it called? Um, guerrilla warfare, hmm. Batman and Gotham, um, you know, because there's no outside help. It's literally just him and Alfred, you know, mucking it through the trenches trying to fight everything because I think Gotham got completely cut off from like resources, food, water, electricity, and everything in between. I just was realizing I said Cassandra Kane earlier. It's Kate Kane. Yes, yeah. Batwoman. Kate, Kate, Batwoman. I was getting her mixed up with Cassandra Orphan. So many, yeah, yeah so many names. Yeah. There's so many repeated ones in comics. It's kind of yes. weird. Like Lois Lane and Lana Lang. How, how, what? The infamous Marthas. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Which I didn't even notice for years. Years, yeah. Um, okay, so then you have Hush is a really, really for good reasons, infamous Batman storyline um, took place in the 90s, which um, basically follows um, Thomas Elliot, who, right? Yeah, Thomas Elliot, who is a friend of the Waynes, who his son becomes this supervillain, Hush, who t- finds out that Batman is Bruce Wayne, and due to the Waynes, uh, whatever badness with his father, um, decides to take out his vengeance on Bruce by taking out his vengeance on Batman um, is pretty much how it ends up working out. So, very, very legendary story. It gives a really great intro to a lot of Batman's rogues gallery because it is a big whodunit. You have to figure, he has to figure out who Hush is. Is it somebody in his rogues gallery? Is it somebody from his past? Is it another villain? Is it another hero? Um, one big one wasn't Red Hood one of the contenders? Wasn't that around the same time that was happening? Oh, or am that, I just mixing that story? No, up? so what happens is that kind of um Hush gets Clayface to go as him with the face of Jason. Oh yeah. So Bruce doesn't know that Jason is back, but somehow uh Hush knew that Jason was back and was doing that to fuck with him. And that kind yeah, of and so then, a- so then after that, Bruce finds out. Oh wait, he really is back. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, in in under the redhead, but for Hush, um, people are have pretty much caught on that uh, the movie talked about a journalist whose name was Edward Elliot, same last name as Thomas Elliot from the comic. Um, he in the movie was set to expose the dark history of the Wayne family, but ended up on the wrong end of Carmine Falcone, AKA dead. Um, this movie's Edward Elliot obviously shares a surname with Thomas Elliot, whose son Tommy becomes the DC comics villain Hush. Um, it is also totally possible that uh, Thomas Elliot had a son who is running around somewhere in the Matt Reeves Batman universe who will end up taking up the character name of Hush, taking out his revenge on Batman slash Bruce for what his father did to Edward Elliot, as it would be in this universe. Um, I did mention earlier that there is a potential Easter egg for the Riddler's identity that has to do with Hush, so uh, that is basically... It was never definitively revealed if Edward Nashton is actually his name or if that's one of his aliases. Therefore, uh, he could be the lost son of Edward Elliot, Tommy, who um, was put in orphanage at a very young age, which checks out because Edward Elliot was murdered. Um, And then he would grow up to become, well, not necessarily Hush, but this version of Hush, I guess, is what you would end up calling that. 
Um, yeah, and when we first uh, saw this, I totally thought that that was going to be the twist, was that um, he's actually the hush, he is, uh, you know, the hush child, the hush kid. Um, what I think it might end up being is that that kid did get adopted, but he ended up uh, getting picked up by the Court of Owls, and he mm. is now the one who is the, the head owl who runs everything and controls the talents. We, sh- we can talk about the Court of Owls, because that was something that people are speculating a lot for the next movie, so we'll talk about that in the what's next section. Perfect. Uh, uh, ooh. Um, Barry, we're just going to call him Barry, because I'm not going to try and pronounce that very <laughs> Irish last name, uh, but he was in Eternals. You know who I'm talking about. He was eventually, uh, has been confirmed as having played the Joker in that very brief, uh, was it end scene it was just the end scene right it wasn't a credit thing of any kind um he had a really interesting he had a couple interesting lines um one was one day you're on top the next year a clown which is probably just some loose joke about him uh and then one thing that's kind of funny is that he tells the riddler riddle me this which is him stealing the riddler's comic book catchphrase and using it on his own which i think is very joker uh, Matt Reeves pretty much immediately came out after the movie premiered to say that he is not committing to the idea that Joker is going to be a villain in any of the next projects, which I think is a really good thing. Uh, there's so much more to Batman's villains than just the Joker, which we've seen a lot of, and I think it's about time we see someone else. Um, the Joker would make sense for the Arkham show if there are in fact going through with that, um, because that's literally where we see him in this movie. Um, also, Barry, good old Barry, whose last name we're not going to try pronouncing, uh, is credited on IMDb as Officer Stanley Merkel, who is a mentioned but never fully seen officer who worked with Gordon in the Year One comics, although he was first introduced in Dark Knight Returns, which takes place much later on in Batman's career. That possibly was just an Easter egg that doesn't mean much, but it could hint at a bit of backstory, so only time really will tell. Um, We already mentioned the Riddler's plan to flood the city being ripped out of Year Zero by Snyder and Capullo, and finally, you may have noticed uh, twins as the Penguin's henchmen. That was Max and Charlie Carver, uh, who were playing the doormen, rumored to be Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Which is honestly hilarious. Mm-hmm. The movie score was one of the most well-received aspects of the Batman by far. I don't think anybody dislikes it at all. Um, I personally was listening to it while I was watching, watching, I was writing out uh, some of the notes for this podcast episode. Uh, I hear a lot of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter influence, which I don't think has to do with knowing that Pattinson was a Harry Potter character at one point. I think it really does just sound like that. Um, It's a lot of timpanies and horns, which I really, really love. Interestingly, although this is a very dark timpanies and horns, um, you can go back to the classic Superman movies where they have timpanies and horns being used in a very bright and like marching band kind of style. So it's kind of funny, the versatility of instruments. Yes, I was a percussion student, why do you ask? The composer for the score is one Michael Giacchino. Giacchino? How do you? Giacchino? Giacchino. 
I am so sorry. Uh, but he did Up, The Incredibles, as well as Doctor Strange. I don't know if he's doing Multiverse of Madness. I didn't actually bother to look that up. Uh, Matt Reeves says of him, Michael brought soul. He brought dread. He brought all of the emotional and atmospheric undercurrents that a movie like this requires. You almost can't articulate what he brings. You can just feel it, how he expresses himself through music, how it relates to story. This is also the fifth movie that Reeves has done with Michael, including two Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, that explains why he knew Zanzi Circus. Uh, Let Me In and Cloverfield. Uh, he's, his Batman theme contains two musical ideas, uh, which is according to Reeves. One is Batman's obsession, an ominous repeating four-note motif. The other is a Wayne theme that, quote, has a kind of great melancholy that is really about being Bruce, says Reeves. Uh, with that four-note riff repeated over and over, gradually getting louder and louder, I'm just going to say Michael's captivating Batman theme builds to the bat's arrival like a shark approaching in Jaws. This Batman theme can't be hummed as easily as Elfman's, but is still incredibly memorable. Uh, yes, I did actually have it stuck in my head for a solid couple of hours after we left the movie the first time. Michael's slinky Catwoman theme emerged from discussions of classic noir scores, including Jerry Goldsmith's Chinatown, Reeves reveals. He says, So we talked about incorporating those kinds of strings. Michael had written this beautiful theme for her that he had that had almost gotten too purpley with a sax and everything. So he stripped it back, but there's a little bit of noir lilt to it, a, ja a slightly jazzy vibe. Um, also, uh, another like fun tidbit about the Batman theme um, is that the drum riffs is very similar to the Imperial March. Um, listen to them both back to back, and you'll definitely hear them mm -hmm. pick it up. Uh, the score was recorded with a seventy-piece London orchestra and a six-member boys' choir over the course of twelve days in October twenty twenty-one. The orchestra, which was primarily strings, brass, and percussion, with almost no woodwinds, just three clarinets, was divided between Abbey Road Studio 1 and Studio 2, recording simultaneously with two conductors, which was due to COVID protocols. Reeves says, What I love about him is, and he's talking about the composer still, He's like a jokester. You all know his title tracks are puns, examples of being Escaped Crusader and For All Your Pennyworth which still drives me crazy to this day, but under all of that, he is most sincerely emotional person. So it's almost a wonderful experience. Oh, it's always a wonderful experience. It's one of my favorite parts of making any movie and music is a very powerful tool. One of the most recognizable songs from the movie was obviously Nirvana's Something in the Way. Yeah, I it was I was amazed when we were into the movie and and that starts playing and <laughs> it fits so well with him like just zooming around on that motorcycle, you know, tweaking things in the lab. Uh, I that was just like one of the most like deep dark songs on that album and like I can very rarely listen to the whole twenty minute version of it uh, <laughs> and then kind of skip it. But now it's like it's this. I think it was. Uh, I think I saw something. It's like Spotify after this movie came out this song got had like a 434 percent jump in people <laughs> streaming and playing it um it's just awesome to see this like dark grungy song like work so well into now it's like i kind of find myself humming it um i think somebody even put it on the work playlist now <laughs> if you look up the song you'll find that the lyrics are a meditation on depression and desperation 
Initially, the explanation was that the song was written as a reflection of Kurt Cobain's upbringing, highlighting a time when he lived under a bridge after being kicked out of his house. Um, I, on doing research on this, I found out that it was actually not true, even though that was what he had said for a very long time. That was actually a story that was not true in any way. Uh, he later admitted that it was about an imagined version of himself living under a bridge and dying of AIDS. So, fun fact, I guess. Hmm. Um, from the... I have two lines from the Mary Sue, which is an article that I have linked below about the use of this song in the movie uh, and these two lines are really good so i'm just going to quote them for you it says the song is about something being in the way of whatever your goal may be for cobain it was different than what it in the what is in the way for bruce but the song works in the world Reeves built either way because bruce himself is getting in the way of the symbol he wants batman to be when bruce goes to look at the mayor's home after he's murdered the rid after he's murdered by the riddler the music starts when Bruce sees the, mayor, the mayor's young son, who found his dead father, letting us know that the song is representative of what is in Bruce's way, and it's his inability to unpack his own trauma and pain and his willingness to, instead, hide behind his alter ego. In an interview with Empire Magazine, Reeves talks about the use of this song. He says, When I write, I listen to music, and as I was writing the first act, I put on Nirvana's Something in the Way. That's when it came to me that, rather than make Bruce Wayne the playboy version we've seen before, there's another version who had gone through a great tragedy and become a recluse. So I started making this connection to Gus Van Sant's Last Days, and the idea of this fictionalized version of Kurt Cobain being this kind of in this kind of decaying manner. It's a pretty cool um, explanation of his inspiration from the song. But the first song that audiences will hear in the Batman, actually the first sound, is the opening of Schubert's Ave Maria. It's actually heard three times in the movie, and Schubert's melody is continuously weaved through the soundtrack in a twisted villainous arrangement. The first time we hear it is that opening scene while the Riddler watches his first victim, Mayor Don Mitchell, and his family through their windows. Second time we hear it is in archive footage sound in the city's old orphanage. The song is performed by a children's school children's choir while Bruce's Batman's father and Bruce's father, Thomas Wayne, gives his electoral speech. The third time we hear the song it is sung by the Riddler himself while he is locked up in Arkham State Hospital. The lyrics of Ave Maria, which means Hail Mary in English, revere Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary, in the Christian religion, just in case you were unaware. The song is also visually associated with death throughout the film, with the first time it plays preempting the death of Mayor Don Mitchell Jr., and the second time preempting the death of Thomas Wayne. In Arkham State Hospital, this is a quote from... In an article, we'll just say in an article, uh, I have a quote that says, In Arkham State Hospital, the Riddler recounts in the orphanage, 30 children would sleep in one room, and every winter a baby would die because it was so cold, and the institution was unable to properly care for the infants. The despair and wish for safety during sleep in Schubert's lyrics are echoed by the Riddler in his description of his childhood, and perhaps explain why this melody was chosen to soundtrack his character which is just a nice little wrap-up of the usage of that particular song. As for what is coming next in the franchise, there is a good amount to look forward to. 
Uh, yeah, they, there was definitely a lot of um, things being set for the stage of future, future Gotham. Um, definitely off rip with the mayor being killed, um, the police commissioner, um, and as well as the district attorney. Um, th those are pretty like high profile uh, kills, but they were also shown that these weren't actually good people. Um, the mayor being killed, there's been so many mayors in Gotham, they could put anybody there. Um, the police commissioner, that's obviously opening up the door for Gordon, um, and to, you know, fully have him open up that doorway to fully work with Batman without mm -hmm. anybody getting in the way. And of course, dis district attorney, everybody's favorite, Harvey Dent. Oh, actually, just real quick, um, I forgot that I was also reading that. Um, it's one article theorized that Tweedledee and Tweedledum, the twins, who everybody's assuming is going to be Tweedledee and Tweedledum, um, they apparently work for Two-Face in the comics. Um, so somebody was saying that, that could be a reference to him existing already as a character here, and he's just, like, got them on loan to the Penguin or something. That would be very cool yeah. to see. Um, and as well as there's been, there's been, I'm not, I think these are all, these ones are all confirmed. They are uh, this confirmed, three yeah. three TV shows, uh, the Gotham PD show, of course, which will be about Gordon, um, and his experiences. Efforts. Yeah, <laughs> like, cause that's definitely a, a losing battle most days for <laughs> Um, the Arkham show, which I would like for it to be about, um, the, the Martha family, the mm. Martha, you know, bloodline, the but Arkhams. then also maybe a little bit of, you know, to get people happy, just put Barry in there as the Joker. Yeah, if, if he's going to show up episodes. anywhere, that would be the place to do it. Um, and probably my most anticipated confirmed one, um, the Penguin. I, I would love to see, like, what he's going to do now, um, because from the way Gotham ended on that, he very much had this look in his eyes that he's out, he's he's kind of pissed off at Batman now. <laughs> um, and I think the one that was rumored was the Catwoman show. Oh yeah, um, that was uh, something we had heard watching I, through. I would totally be down to in watch. Blood Haven. In Bloodhaven, Blood, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would totally be down to watch her get into that. Um, and then, you know, I know as, I already knew as soon as she said, I'm going to go to Bloodhaven, everybody on Lost were like, oh my god, Nightwing, Nightwing. It he's not going to be Nightwing yet. Exactly. Or the only way I'd be fine with it is if she's already there and Nightwing is some sort of already established hero. But now it's on the huge off chance. Um, I know I kind of hinted at it earlier about the Court of Owls. Mm, uh, yes, talk about that. I would absolutely love to see that. Um, not just because I, I'm a fanboy of that storyline, but just because that storyline in and of itself just lends itself so well to this to work perfect with Reeves. The sins of the father. Yeah, the sins of the father and then just everything, you know, because in this movie... Family secrets. Yes, because in this movie it shows that, you know, it, the Waynes were rich, but they probably weren't great people. Mm. Um, and he's kind of starting to see that. And then also, I, I think it was a little key down on purpose, when he gets that letter um, that says Bruce to Bruce that says see you on hell and the owl, and the owl eyes on mm. it, I felt like that was very much like a nice little nod. And then I know there was a lot of people who had the plot holes of where did Riddler get this information? Where did Riddler? That's probably my. If they want to wrap that up, they could say that's the shadow helping hand of the Court of Owls, and then it'd be really cool to see like that's where Thomas Elliot ended up as some sort of way in that. And then it's um, the whole point of the Court of Owls in the comic storyline was that you know Bruce thinks he knows Gotham in and out and how it runs, and in this movie it's kind of showing that from the Gotham renewal fund and what his parents were and everybody else, he doesn't know Gotham as much as he thinks he does. And then it'd be even more enjoyable to watch him like dig into more of that and see that Gotham has so many more secrets that he had no idea about. I could see them playing it almost in an MCU kind of way where the court of owls would be the big bad who we don't actually see until the very end of the second movie. And then the third movie is 
really Bruce probably being completely humiliated by them while he's trying to keep his life from being utter shambles or whatever they're doing to take him down. Hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, if he does run into them, that could be the way for him to go, yeah, maybe I do need a partner, you know, to somehow mm-hmm. bring in a Robin-esque character. Needs a helper of something. Yes. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Um, no, that was it. Thank okay. you for having me here. Yes, thank you for doing this. Finally, we are finally, our schedule is aligned. Yes. Um, what are your social medias if people would like to find oh, you yes. online? Yeah, social if, medias. If you guys uh, enjoyed me being here. Yes. Again, oh, yeah. Also, yeah. Let me know if you want more of him. <laughs> um, you can find me um, on Instagram. That is mainly where I'm at. Um, I'll link yeah. it in the profile yeah. uh, Insta- in the in the description. Yeah, Instagram. Um, you can find me there at a DZ40 A-D-E-E-Z-Z-Y-4-0. Um, and then I'm also on Disc- Instagram and Discord is where I spend most of my time these days. Um, I don't really mess with much else. Okay. You already know all of my stuff. I will link them all in the bottom for anybody who doesn't know. Um, I don't think I'm going to make this a Discord exclusive, uh, not Discord, a Patreon exclusive first because it was kind of a surprise thing anyway. Um, so yeah, thank you everyone for listening for whatever portion you listen to. If you have other thoughts or theories or ideas, anything about the movie that you would like to share, we are always open to that. Um, my next episode is just going to be a regularly scheduled weekly episode and it's coming Monday. Um, and let's see, Multiverse of Madness is coming out this week. If you've already seen it, congratulations. Um, by the time this comes out and you listen to it. Uh, same with the Moon Knight finale. People of the future, I hope that was a good one. Fingers crossed. Um, stay hydrated, keep it sweaty, and love comics.